There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. Uh, I'm Ryan Silverstein, and with me is... Megan Bojarski. This podcast is going to cover, as we said, every Disney movie ever. Uh, every theatrical feature-length film that has been released by the Disney company. Uh, and in some ways, this episode actually officially kicks off our first mini-series within this larger podcast project. Uh, our first eight episodes, including the two that were released last week as sort of a prologue. Um, so this miniseries I'm calling The First Five Features, and will take us from the beginning of the Disney studio in 1923, like we talked about in last week's episode, uh, through the release of Bambi in 1942. Um, after that point, uh, with the war effort, and, and after the Disney animator strike, um, things start to sort of take a different direction. And so that'll be its its own miniseries. But I thought this would be a good way to, to sort of kick off and give us a grounding for where we're going from here. So to roll back the clock a little bit, uh, it's February 1934. Uh, the United States is struggling with the Great Depression. Fascism is on the rise in Europe and around the world. Uncertain and difficult times have engulfed the entire world. Uh, one evening, as the artists and animators leave Walt Disney Studios, Walt himself hands them 50 cents to buy dinner and hurry back to the studio for a special announcement. When they return, filing into a dark sound stage with a single spotlight, Walt Disney takes the floor and acts out the story of a princess forced to be a scullery maid, a vain queen, and some comedic helping hands. Throughout the performance, Walt imitates the high-pitched voice of a young girl, the laugh of the evil queen, and mimes the actions of the dwarves. Those who are in the room describe it as spellbinding. And this was how Walt Disney told his team that they'd be making their first ever, the first ever, animated feature film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That story, like so much about Disney, has passed into legend. And indeed, so much has been written about this film over the years. A truly comprehensive look at it would be easily its own whole podcast. Um... So for this episode, we're going to touch on all the major points and try to evaluate the film, both sort of in context, uh, as well as from the perspective of today. Um, so, so Megan, had you heard that story about Snow White before? So before I started doing the research, I don't think I had heard it at all. And then I read, I believe, six or seven different books, their depiction of Snow White, and every single one of them tells this story. So it's one of those stories that Walt and uh, some of his higher-ups just said over and over again. And you really hear about how much Walt kind of exuded the energy of the film that he was going to make, which I always find really interesting. Um, 
especially since Walt considered being an actor for a little while, uh, which is something that a lot of people don't really hear about. Um, but his early career, he was doing cartoons, he was in the Red Cross for a little while, and when he went to LA, he wasn't sure if he was going to go animation or actor. And he decided at the time that it was easier to get into animation, which seems absurd to me now. Uh, but I find that story fascinating because you just have to wonder, like, what would have happened if he had gone the other way? I mean, would his ideas have still led him to this place? I mean, as we all know these days, he got bored easily and jumped onto theme parks and completely different kinds of stories and all of that. Um, but yeah, I love this kind of origin story of it all where we hear, you know, just how deeply this story resonated with Walt. How about you? Had you heard it before you were digging into this? Yeah, I, I, I had a vague memory of it just being a person who grew up in a household around a lot of Disney material and things. Um, but it also, as I was doing research, it did come up every single time, every, every single source that I was looking at for this, uh, it came up. And, and to me, it's, it's all, whether or not the story is factual, it feels true um, to kind of, you know, plus what you said uh, in that, you know, what what really came through for me is the way that, that the passion that Walt had and the way that he was like, not just telling them like, you know, all right, guys, like we're going to make Snow White. It's going to be the first feature film. Like he was selling them on the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs as much as he was selling them on the concept of doing a feature film. You know what I mean? Like you can uh, you can really see in this story, like I said, his passion for this particular idea you know, and I think there's maybe a lot of people who don't realize that for a long time Walt Disney was the voice of Mickey Mouse. Like, I feel like that's even a thing that sort of gets, you know, a little forgotten today. Um, and so there there are pieces of Walt, the actor, <laughs> you know, in, in this story, in Mickey, in the, um, the TV work that he did, the way that he became a personality. And I feel like the release of Snow White is sort of like the beginning of like Walt the showman in public mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah, I, I find it really fascinating because, you know, you think about it, I think we discussed in our first uh, episode looking through the histories, there's a lot of people involved in making these and so many more involved in making the first animated uh, or at least the first U.S. animated uh, feature film. And it has such a clear vision I mean, there, there's different tones, obviously, but there's never a point where I'm watching it and I go, oh, somebody else worked on this part and didn't quite hit the, the theme. And it's just so impressive and speaks so much to how passionately and perfectly Walt must have told it in that first, you know, session. I know they all went over everything a million times, but... You know, to be able to sell that idea so cleanly that every single person working on it kind of got the message uh, is just really impressive to me and, and says a lot about kind of his inspirations for it, um, which are, are kind of fascinating because we see, you know, cartoons at this point, there weren't many humans, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it was building up, but it was mostly animals, it was mostly gags. Um, 
you know, Walt had the Alice series, but he had Alice as a human in real life. Uh, so it was just kind of interesting to look into how he came to it. Because Walt had his own ideas and he had his writers coming up with all of that. But a lot of these things came back to what was inspiring to him when he was younger. Um, for instance, he described that uh, when his grandmother used to read him fairy tales and, and children's stories, that Snow White always stood out to him, that it was something he fell in love with from a child. And then when he was in Kansas City working as a newsboy, he would slip into theaters and just kind of try to see what was going on in the world. And that was a point where he saw the silent film version of Snow White starring Marguerite Clark. And it's kind of wild that, you know, I have a favorite fairy tale from my childhood and I have favorite movies I watched as a kid. But to have them kind of turn from those things you enjoyed as a kid to, you know, the sensation that Snow White was, it, it really speaks to how strong his you know, drive and, and appreciation of that story was. Yeah, and I think this is one of those projects, and we'll be talking about a bunch of them, obviously, over the course of much of this podcast, but I think there's there's going to be a few of these that really jump out. Like, Walt touched everything and ultimately sort of, like, was involved to one degree or another with every film that they released up until... His passing, uh, which was relatively sudden, but at least to the people who knew him, Walt's fingerprints are all over every single aspect of this movie, from the conception of it all the way through to uh, you know the Academy Awards. Essentially, like this was a like Walt laser focused, you know, um, and we'll talk more about that and how that actually sort of played out and influenced the film itself. But, you know, I think there's a couple of these that come to mind like this, you know, Fantasia is another sort of like one of like Walt's really passion projects. Mary Poppins is another one for people who have seen Saving Mr. Banks. That plays a big role in, in that movie retelling of <laughs> uh, the movie. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what others, um, you know, we, we discover along the way were sort of like Walt passion projects. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you can feel it in the projects usually, uh, but it is funny, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but uh, that Walt was willing to bankrupt everything for his passion projects. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was called Disney's Folly because everyone genuinely believed that, oh yeah, that guy, he's got a good thing going with that Mickey Mouse, but... um He's going into bankruptcy over this silly little fairy tale dream. Uh, and he kept doing that. I was listening to an interview from him earlier today where he was talking about Fantasia. And he was like, yeah, that one was not, uh, not the commercial success of Snow White, but I was willing to stake the company on it anyway. And uh, I don't know. I don't know that it, it hit as much in the moment, but I think we can definitely feel it looking back now which projects he just poured his soul into. And I think that's that's exactly right about how it's working. You know, it, it was his company, he wanted some control, but these were his projects and these were the ones that made the money for him to have his projects. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was sort of a one for them, one for me, but he was both them and me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Um, I wanted to take a moment to sort of uh, talk about fairy tales because they're such a intrinsic part of the Disney brand. Like, obviously, like, the Disney princesses all the way up from, you know, from Snow White all the way through, you know, Elsa from Frozen and Moana. Like, they all they all land, they all come from this fairy tale tradition, even when they're drawing from traditions around the world and not just from Western Europe or, or Eastern Europe. Um, there's the fairy tale idea is like at the core of the Disney brand, if anything besides Mickey is at that center. Prior to this point, a lot of the shorts, like the ones we talked about last week with Tortoise and the Hare and Three Little Pigs, you know, those are fables and folktales. Fables have a clear, simple moral like slow and steady wins the race or hard work is necessary for a good life. Fairy tales are more often about changes in social standing. So it's not, it's not necessarily an individual going through a thing that changes them and they learn a moral lesson. There is still that piece of it, but it's only one piece. And the moral lessons typically are more complex because they, fairy tales were originally for uh, adults and children to be entertained and to sort of instruct. And so Snow White doesn't have a simple like one sentence moral that encapsulates the story. It's about a bunch of different things. And especially with all the different versions, some versions bring out different aspects of that story. Um, and so, you know, we're not really going to go into like all the different versions of Snow White and the way that it was adapted from a story perspective. But I did think it would be a little bit helpful to just talk about like taking taking setting aside like the modern contemporary mind. And, I, and by modern, I mean, like, you know, 1800s forward, or <laughs> 1900s forward. Um you know, Snow White is a fairy tale about vanity, about jealousy and purity. Um, and so it's certainly possible to interpret the story to be about valuing youth and feminine beauty above all else. Um, but Snow White herself is kind of a passive character. And to me, the stronger theme that comes out of the core of the story is it's sort of a, a cautionary tale for the evil queen um, about pride and obsession and, you know, the queen turning into an old woman she gives up the thing that she loves the most which is her beauty in order to try to take that beauty away from snow white and so her jealousy and vanity has completely you know corrupted the queen and to me like that's that's like the big strong actual message of this is not that we should value snow white's beauty but that the queen does and that's that's sort of her downfall um and so you know part of the challenge here with a fairy tale as opposed to a, fo a folk a a fable. Fables often star animal characters, which is, you know, Disney's cartoons in general, the sort of bread and butter. Like even, you know, when you're talking about at this point, you have like human characters like Popeye and Betty Boop or, or like very exaggerated caricatures. But Walt Disney and the animators wanted this to really connect with audiences emotionally. They had to feel for the characters. They have they had to have that heart coming through. And animated humans was a big part of the challenge of that it was like they needed to rise to the occasion because if they could get people to feel for these characters the whole movie would work and if they couldn't it was definitely going to be a massive failure yeah i think that one of the things we can go on about you know fairy tales and i think there's so much value in that because like you said you know they're children's tales but they're also very much not. I mean, 
not to go into all the versions, but the Evil Queen does not have a good fate in the Disney version or the original one. Um, you know, in the original one, they put her in, I believe, iron, uh, but possibly steel boots that are heated up on fire and make her dance until she dies. So it's it's not all, all child-friendly. But something I find interesting about why he picked Snow White, you know, we've got these myths. It's the childhood. It's the that first silent film. And I'm not saying those aren't true. But let's think about some of the biggest fairy tales and think about names for a second. Because a lot of classic fairy tales did not give their characters names. You know, I mean, uh, Beauty and the Beast, there are variable names, but usually she's just a young maiden or a beauty. You know, uh, Rumpelstiltskin, the princess and the pea, all of these things, it, uh, it's just a princess, a maiden. Snow White is probably, at that time, the most recognizable named character. I think Cinderella has, has overtaken her now. But I think it's so interesting to look into, you know, I think before Disney, the stories were iconic. But with Disney, the characters were iconic. You know, it wasn't just this story, like you said, there's the, the vanity and the morals and the questions of jealousy and all of that. And I think that stays. But like you said, Walt was really good at narrowing in on the these human emotions and these human you know arcs um i mean going back to to disney's inspirations uh walt's daughter diane quoted him as saying that snow white was and still is the perfect plot but the reason for that isn't because it was you know a round of three things which uh in some of the original versions it's you know Snow White, there's a poisoned comb, and there's uh, too tight of a corset, and then the apple. Uh, it wasn't about that. It was about the sympathy of these two women who have been kind of pitted against each other, and how they're fighting to, you know, survive and have supremacy, and, and really all of that. Um, it was about the humanity of it all, you know, in the names in the stories in the animation walt didn't see stories as plots he saw them as characters going through you know wild situations um and i think that's a really big difference I, and that's something that you can see in a lot of film did the writers follow a character or a plot and i think that that's so critical to why this was a success. Walt always was about the character. You've got to make sure that the character is is relatable and believable and pitiable, sympathetic. It is somebody that the audience can really, you know, connect with. And I think that's just absolutely one of these kind of big notes that he was just that successful at. That's a really great point about the characters, because when we think about the legacy and, you know, we'll talk in detail about that towards uh, the, the end of the show today. But the 
um, when the first rides opened at Disneyland based on the animated movies, uh, there weren't like there wasn't like a Snow White animatronic in the Snow White ride. There wasn't a Peter Pan in the Peter Pan ride because the the conception of the was that you were the main character and you were experiencing their story. But people kept complaining because they wanted to see the characters. They wanted to follow the character on the character's journey. And they, they were like missing the point that they were supposed to be Snow White or they were supposed to be Peter Pan in the rides. And so they had to go back and add them later because, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it was throwing people off. And it was, you know, they, they were spent the whole ride looking for Snow White and she wasn't there. Uh, and I think that says so much about the way people relate to these characters. And again, if you ask a little kid about, you know, going to one of the Disney theme parks, I feel like they're most excited often to meet the characters. Like they might like some of the rides and whatever, but they, they got to meet Mickey Mouse. They want to meet Cinderella. They want to meet Moana, whoever their favorite character is. They want to get the autograph. They want to, you know, get that experience and, you know, making character the main focus, you know, it, it seems like it was just Walt's instinct, but it turned out to be one of the most brilliant choices he could have made, I feel like. Yeah. I feel like that's such a great point with the, you know, the theme parks and the idea that you were Snow White going through the story. And I wonder, to some extent, if that's part of what has caused the boom in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years of the villains being so central. That, you know... Disney parks at the early on, you know, weren't showing the characters. They were showing the villains against you. And then kind of as we've grown in and, and now you can get a picture with every princess and every, every character that kind of those villains who have been there from the beginning are kind of stepping up uh, into, well, what's their story? How can we go into them as, you know, a character, not just an obstacle? Um, so I, I, I really find that fascinating. And, and you're right, it it seems like so much of this came to, to Walt very intuitively. I mean, it he freely admitted he is not the best director. He is not the best animator. You know, he he is not the best at just about anything at the studio. But he knew how to make a story that would connect with people better than anybody. Uh, and there's very few people who have that kind of perfect instinct the way that he did. Um, that being said, I think that it's kind of important as we go into the more production-focused side of this podcast, uh, which I think we'll be transitioning to in just a minute, that we do acknowledge that, you know, he did so many amazing things with this inspiration and these ideas, um, but it'll be important for us to look at the other people along the way, too. Uh, because Snow White, you know, had hundreds of workers, but but so many that really left their mark. And we'll we'll talk about a little bit more details uh, on that as we go forward here. Yeah, and, and as much credit as we're, we're giving Walt this episode, I, I do think that uh, he would be the first to admit that he you're you know, the animated film is only as good as the 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 worst artist working on it. Um mm -hmm. You know, I think that was very much in line with his philosophy. And, you know, that Steve Jobs quote about playing the orchestra always comes to mind when I think of Walt Disney, because he's, again, using all of the people 
you know, all of the resources he has as at his disposal and in his circle to try to make the best thing and, you know, letting people play to their own strengths and, you know, really sort of leading from the back in a, in a way, but not in a, not in a negative way. Um, and we want to make sure that we give, you know, a little bit of spotlight and credit for uh, those names that have jumped out to us in our research and things. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do want to delve into the production, uh, but I really, I want to spend a little bit of time just again, like setting, setting the clock back mentally because, you know, sitting here in 2023, best animated feature film is a cat is a category at the Oscars, which is still only about 20, a little over 20 years old at this point. Um, it's easy to mark because you can always remember that Shrek won the first one, which feels <laughs> weird, but, uh, you know. Um, fairy tales. It's all uh, about fairy that... tales. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, like, the idea of an animator of an animated feature film wasn't necessarily inevitable. Like if Walt didn't do it, then maybe it would have happened later, maybe not. Um, But there's two important, but only sort of partially related ideas of what caused the need for a feature film. So first, again, as we'll come back over and over, Walt's attention span was already waning when it came to short cartoons. The studio's output was immensely popular at, at this point in the 1930s. They had won every Oscar for, for cartoons since the category was introduced. Um, and so he sort of felt like, you know, or may have felt like, uh, that they had hit a ceiling for how much they could accomplish with a single real short cartoon. Um, but it was, you know, you can't top picks with pigs. Uh, kind of extends to this mentality also. You can't, like, how how good could you make a short? And it, you know... Three Little Pigs is still the most successful Disney short ever by some measure. And so, you, again, like you kind of get the sense that Walt already saw that and was like, what do I need? to? What's the next thing that we need to do? Um, and then, of course, the other was financial. So other studios could use cartoons as a loss leader, like Warner Brothers and their Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, um, which we really I did. I did mention last week that, like, it's really funny that you look up like synonyms for like silly symphony and you get Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. Um, but Disney had no other revenue streams besides the movies themselves and the merchandise. So the only place to go was bigger, which, again, will become a, a bigger and bigger thing as we go forward through this. Um, and of course, with a bigger scale com- come bigger stakes. Uh, so Walt had to increase the number of staff at the studio, which uh, eventually ballooned over to over 300 artists. Um, each Silly Symphony was usually produced for around $20,000. A feature would be 10 times as long and require 10 times the number of drawings. So a conservative budget was estimated at $200,000. <laughs> um, <laughs> in reality, uh, Disney would run up a bill of almost $1.48 million dollars or $25 million in 2020 dollars, um, almost bankrupting the studio, requiring the mortgaging of his own house as a source for funding. Uh, and so it wasn't just like the industry and like the gossip magazines or whatever that were calling Snow White Disney's folly. It was also his brother Roy and his wife Lillian both t- tried to talk about the project. Um, you know, and this this theme around the finances will continue to come up over and over as we've alluded to. And $20 million or, tw- you know, $25 million isn't a lot today for, you know, a studio animated film. But if you're thinking about Disney still as roughly 
an independent studio. Like they had a distribution deal, I think with RKO at the time. Um, but they're, they're, they're doing it all on their own, you know? And I think that contrast with Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes is really interesting that like, you know, Warner Brothers was putting out like big time movies that made a lot of money and, you know, won a bunch of Oscars and stuff and had, you know, their own stable of stars and, and all that kind of thing. And Disney had Mickey and <laughs> the other cartoons. Um, you know, and again, going back to um, that that human element in terms of trying to draw real people, uh, this was actually tied into the cost. So in 1934, they released a Silly Symphony cartoon called Goddess of Spring, which was directed by Wilfred Jackson, who we talked about last week and will continue to bring up. Um, and it's a loose retelling of uh, Persephone and Hades. And it's one of the first attempts by the studio to create human beings that look and move in a more realistic fashion. Um, and so in the opening moments of, of this cartoon, it looks pretty good until she starts to move. And then the goddess of spring has those kind of like rubber hose limbs. Um, so like her face looks really good and like her body looks really good. And then the movement still looks like a cartoon person moving. It doesn't look like an animated human being. Um, and so like it was a big step forward, but going from that in 1934 to the, um, to the release of Snow White in, I'm now like blanking on. 37, on the, I uh, believe. 50. Yes. Watching The Goddess of Spring, um, which I believe is on, which I found on YouTube. If you look at that and then you look at Snow White, you can see how much progress they made in a short number of years. And so um, according to some animation experts that I found in my research, Disney as a studio basically leapt a decade forward in three years, um, which is amazing and a huge artistic achievement, but also costs a lot of money. Um, you know, Walt and the story department and the animators there's a lot of trial and error that went into Snow White. If a sequence didn't work, it was completely redone. Animation would be thrown away. It was learning as they went. And, you know, it was part of Walt's total obsession. So there were 25 meetings just on the design of Snow White's dress, which is now iconic. They got it right, <laughs> I feel like. Um, but that's the level of detail and obsession and time and money that was spent on this. Every gag, every decision was discussed to death, with Walt giving his blessing on every single aspect of this movie. Um, you know, and again, as we've alluded to, there are other obsessions that Walt would have, but it feels like this was the first one where it was Walt changing the direction of the company because he couldn't let go of an idea, and it was that important to him. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, you really see it with, it's hard to quite quantify it, but the creation and the destruction and the creation and the destruction of so many things where generally speaking, you know, we think, oh, you're just deleting a file on the computer, but, you know, they're literally burning money doing this. Um, it was just kind of such a fascinating process. And the look of Snow White was so hard to get right. Like you said, uh, you know, they didn't really know how to move humans. Nobody was really doing that. So 
with this project, they could kind of get away with it with the dwarves. Snow White had to be perfect, and the queen had to be pretty much perfect. Uh, the prince, you know, he, he needed to be good enough. He, he wasn't as important. Um, but you really see that where you've got, you know, kind of this fight for perfection. Uh, and specifically uh, with the production there, um, I'm going to mispronounce all of this, so feel free to correct me if I do it, but uh, Ham Lusk and Grim Natwick, I believe, uh, worked together to create the look for Snow White. And they were put together and they were complete opposites. Uh, so Lusk wanted this like innocent little baby girl. She was going to be so cute. And Walt looked at it and said, she's getting married at the end. No. Uh, and brought in Natwick, who had designed Betty Boop, who of course went completely seductive. And Walt looked at that and went, hmm, she's supposed to be the personification of innocence. That doesn't look like the personification of innocence. And they kept having to go back and forth. And it's really remarkable kind of how they created this, you know, perfect blending of it. Uh, I will grant you that it still feels kind of uncomfortable. With Snow White, they had to fight for this perfect look. And then they had to create the evil queen to be also beautiful and seductive but also completely different in design and to go from we only know how to make you know these elastic little kind of bouncy figures to two stunning completely different characters you know was really kind of an impressive uh trick and it was incredibly hard to pull off I mean, they described the evil queen as being a mixture of Lady Macbeth and the big bad wolf. Her beauty is sinister, mature, full of curves. And then, of course, uh, the way they designed that was one of the uh, animators, Joe Grant, uh, fell in love-ish with uh, one of the first women to be brought into the story department. And uh, that was Dorothy Ann Blank. She came into the story department in 1936 and he just kept sketching her face. And she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, you're going to be the evil queen because I think you're perfect for that, which I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. Uh, you know, you are the second fairest woman in the land, but also you are evil and sinister and Lady Macbeth. Um is is an interesting uh flirtation tactic yeah I, I think the queen especially like i think snow white is better than they like the prince is best described as good enough <laughs> and then snow white to me is like a couple steps above that where like she really does carry the film she has to work it's not quite there whereas the queen to me feels like fully realized um, in both her her youthful, <laughs> um, you know, the sinister version of her, as well as the um, as sort of the crone-esque figure she becomes at the end. I feel like the queen is really, you know, points the way forward from here, but that doesn't, I don't want to undersell in what the achievement was of Snow White, because again, she, again, carries the story and 
you have to feel for her for this whole thing to sort of work, which we'll talk about uh, when we talk about the dwarves. Um, but it is, it is really cool, that story of uh, Dorothy Ann Blank and, you know, how these little, I always love those sort of little happenstance kind of things that, like, influenced a whole huge thing. And it's just because, like, one guy had a crush on a girl <laughs> and, like, you know, she sort of became the face of this movie in, in some ways. And that's, you know, it, it's kind of remarkable how those things happen. And we see, you know, throughout all of time, check, you know, medieval and Renaissance art, you know, whoever's playing the Virgin Mary was either the patron or whoever that artist thought was really attractive at the time. It wasn't really based on what they thought, you know, the Virgin Mary looked like. Um, but it's kind of funny because you know, Dorothy Ann Blank, she became the face of the evil queen, but she's also one of only two women to be credited on Snow White at all. Um, so she and then uh, Hazel or Hazel, I can't tell which way it's supposed to be, uh, Sewell, who was Walter's sister-in-law, uh, and she was the head of the ink and paint, de paint department. So she was credited for essentially all the women of the company. And then... Dorothy Ann Blank for her face and for her amazing contributions to the writing uh, because she was the evil person every writer hates who said, hey, that funny part you like that does absolutely nothing for the story, it's cut, uh, which I think was so impressive. I mean, we can talk about the length of the movie and how that plays into cost and all of that, but it's a very kind of... Uh, I don't even know how to call it. It, it's, it's, hmm. There's a lot of moderation in the story. You know, it cut out all of the extra attempts that failed. It cut out all of these kind of silly, goofy things, and you can really tell that every scene is there because it's doing something with the story. Uh, whereas today, I think we see a lot of kind of those scenes that are just fun that we we just want. Some artist wanted to do it, so they did it. Um, but yeah, so all of these kind of connections of how one person gets pulled in and, and the various contributions they have, I think is just really fascinating. Yeah. And, and I think it's really, it, it's just really telling how all of this started to came together. And, you know, from, uh, David Hand, who was chosen to direct Snow White by Walt in part because he was the, he was like the best delegator uh, of the director so he was best at sort of corralling you know the heads of each section or each character in the movie and working with them all together as a team and so that's why he was picked for the first feature because it was such a huge project that he was like sort of the best project manager out of all of Walt's like directors he wasn't someone like Wilfred Jackson was sort of had the reputation of being like a, a perfectionist and Walt needed to be the perfectionist on this um and leading such a large team, David Hand, you know, that was more in his expertise. But there's a funny story that he tells about um, Walt throwing Roy Disney out of his office a few times because, you know, not just on Snow White, but on every movie, Roy would be like, we have to spend less money on these because, you know, we're the more we spend, the more we're eating into how much is coming back to us. And so, you know. Roy would come in and say, Walt, we can't spend that much. We're not going to be able to get it back. And Walt would just go, 
Roy, we'll make the pictures. You get the money. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm busy. And just throw Roy out of out of the office. And Roy would go to the, you know, the other like animation heads and talk to them. And they would be like, look, we're following Walt's orders. If you have a problem, take it up with Walt. And the cycle would just sort of begin over and over again. Uh, and they just sort of ignored him and let the money sort of figure it out uh, on their own. Yeah, I uh, I love kind of this back and forth. I mean, people people know about Walt, but Roy, there there would not be Disney if Roy was not, you know, saving money and and acquiring <laughs> money. Uh, but the money matters, you know, are are really kind of fascinating to look into. Um, so, for instance, they, as we said, they had a, a reasonable-ish budget that they went, like, six times over. Uh, and so they had a banker who said, I'm not giving you any more money until I come to the facility and I see the whole thing. And they said, you're not going to do that because it's not done and you're not going to. But we'll give you a tour of the facility and we'll show you a few things. And, and so he came and he went through and he was a very severe man and he kind of had this, this stern face. He would ask to see something and just kind of nod curtly. He would walk through. And so they were absolutely terrified. They thought they were going to essentially lose the company right then and there. As they're leaving, he's getting into his car. He turns around. He says, that thing's going to make a hat full of money. And he leaves. And I just love that story because it's exactly the dynamic of Walt and Roy playing out on the larger economic scale. He's like, look, I can't deny that it's amazing. Like, it is. I mean, they literally invented, you know, over several hundred colors of paint. They invented new technologies, new strategies. You know, they, they took the strategies that they had implemented in the Silly Symphonies, and like you said, escalated it like 10 years. And so the banker, as much as he was walking through going, uh, rooms full of my money burning, he was also seeing the end product going, ah, but there's a money tree coming out of those ashes. Um, and I, I think there's just so much uh, of that in the Disney story. Yeah, and one of the things I love about, you know, just studying Hollywood in general is that this meeting of art and commerce and one, you know, in the, this capitalist society that we live in, one cannot really exist without the other, especially when it comes to large scale mass entertainment. And so seeing that is sort of like foundational to this whole project, I think is also interesting. It's something that, you know, I think we're going to try to keep an eye on as much as we can. Um, and it, what I like about it is he's not like, oh, it's beautiful, therefore it's worthwhile for us to fund this. He's like, oh, this is so great. It's going to make a ton of money, and that's why we should keep financing it. So, like, he is moved by the art, but he recognizes that commercial value of it immediately, which I think is a very fun dynamic. And, and like you said, it's that Walt Roy dynamic, but again, just, like, on another level. Um, and I, I want to make sure that we talk about the dwarfs. So what's really fun about this movie and, and watching it again for the show earlier this week, uh, the 
the movie is very beautiful and you know we'll talk about the scene of snow white escaping through the forest which is very thrilling but it really does come alive in a different way once the dwarfs are introduced and i feel like you know similar to if if we were doing a show about mickey we would be talking about how like mickey sort of almost gets a little lost once they bring in donald and goofy and pluto and minnie and all of the other characters around him where they get some of sort of like the best gags you know um Snow White is sometimes sort of the least interesting character in, you know, a movie that has an amazing villain and these heartwarming sidekicks. Um, you know, so we have Doc, Happy, Sneezy, Sleepy, Bashful, Grumpy, and Dopey. Um, and that is sort of the heart of this movie because the dwarfs are obviously add a lot of gags and humor and entertainment. But I think they actually also had a lot of humanity because they, they were trying to be as human as possible for... You know, Snow White, the prince, the huntsman, and the evil queen. But the dwarves get to live in this middle ground between cartoon character and real person. And so, like, you, we see them as human, but they don't look as odd or sometimes as stiff as some of the, you know, more realistic humans do in this movie. Um, and their movements aren't as restrained. So they have a little bit more, like, give to them in, in the design. Like, animators will talk about squash and stretch. And the dwarves are allowed to squash and stretch more so than Snow White and the other the other humans. Um, and, you know, we feel for them because, like, we feel for Snow White in part because the dwarves feel for her. And, like, they become sort of our surrogate in a way. Um, and so Wilford Jackson has this quote that I really like where um, he's talking about Snow White and he goes, that's a picture that achieved what I think Walt always wanted to achieve, which is what happens to the characters would matter to the audience. They would care and it would seem like the cartoon drawings were real things. I don't think the dwarfs seemed like drawings to people. I think they seemed like living beings. And even Snow White, although we had so much difficulty technically with the girl, I think she seemed maybe like kind of a doll to people. I don't know how people reacted, but it's my belief that they don't think of her as just a drawing and they think I ca they cared about what happened to her in the picture. And so, obviously, each of the dwarfs has their, you know, personality type, which goes into their name, um, which I, I believe Disney invented for this adaptation of the story. Um, but I really, I want to take a little bit to talk about two of them, which is Dopey and Grumpy. So, Dopey being the beardless, silent dwarf, he is a gag machine. He is the comic relief character. The way he moves... His feet move differently than the other dwarves, you know, when they're going singing hi-ho and they're going back and forth to the mine. He's like schlepping along in this like very interesting way where all the other, the six dwarves in front of him are sort of like marching in time and he's kind of doing his own little beat. Um, you know, he's a very sweet character and he's become really iconic, obviously, in his own right. Um, he has that great moment where he's dancing with Snow White in like the big full-size coat where he's standing on top of Sneezy. Um, you know, like that whole sequence is so much fun. But to me, the most important is Grumpy. So, you know, now Grumpy, if, if you go to the theme parks or previously the Disney store when they still had them, there would always be like a like Grumpy Dwarf Dad shirt. <laughs> like, you know, like oh, you know, I'm just here for the snacks or something like that, it, you know, and have Grumpy's face on it. But um, his 
arc of being really skeptical at Snow White and talking about her feminine wiles and how she's going to like change their their lives for the worse um, to going to the very end where he is like shedding a tear for her. That's to me like the emotional heart of the movie is is his sort of little character arc. It's not super complicated. He just comes to really like Snow White and appreciate what what she means to them. Um, but none of the other characters really go through a ton of emotional changes. They all kind of have this like one state. And again, it's it's the whole story is sort of changing around them. Um, you know, the queen just becomes more vain and more obsessed with Snow White and more desperate to uh, to kill her off. But Grumpy is the one who has that interior change of, you know, he has a true change of heart. And to me, it's his reaction to Snow White's death that sells the whole ending of this movie. You know, I'll say, so obviously we're not going to get into uh, the live action adaptations of things too much. Um, and we'll talk about it a little bit more at the end, I think. Um, but they have an upcoming uh, live action Snow White movie coming. And Grumpy, I think, is going to be uh, one of, if not the deciding factor in the movie. And I will say there's a couple of reasons with that. And one of them is I always loved Grumpy until I watched the movie. Um uh, <laughs> Uh, because Grumpy has become kind of this symbol of, you know, I just want to do my own thing and everyone leave me alone, which I think is great. Uh, but in the movie, he's kind of just a misogynist. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I would be fine if he's like, you know, this woman invaded our house, slept in our beds, and is now demanding that we wash up when we never wanted to wash up before. This is stupid. I'm all there. But then he's like, also, she's a woman. And, and there's no reason for that. Like, that, that was the gag of the time. Like, haha, look at the misogynist. Um, and I just, you know, I, I, I love the, you know, resistance to change of Grumpy. I love the idea that Grumpy isn't, you know, tripping over himself to fall in love with Snow White. You know, all of that's great. And I just, they just had to sprinkle misogyny. I, I know it's the 30s and there are much worse things that Disney movies are going to do. Uh, and, and arguably there are other bad things they did in this movie. Dopey is a complicated figure. The concept of dwarves at all is a complicated topic. But but Grumpy, I think, is going to be a really interesting character to see in adaptation because he is iconic, but not for who he actually was in the movies. I think they managed to change his, his pop culture representation beyond what, what the movie actually shows. And I, I think you're right. He does have the growth. I mean, Snow doesn't really have growth. She, you know, was a little bit scared of the prince, but mostly was in love with him and didn't want to die. And then she was scared and didn't want to die. And then she didn't want to die and was happy to be with the prince. That, that, that's kind of her arc. So Grumpy does have that development. I would just like to see it be for valid reasons. 
Uh, and I think there's an easy one. She did come into his house and fundamentally change everything about how they operate. I mean, you know, we, we talk about how the early Disney princesses were so submissive. Snow White is not submissive. She walks into these men's house and takes over everything. You know, I mean, they offer the bed. She, she does, you know, say, I, I don't want to take your bed until they force it. But, you know, other than that, she's like, this is what you're eating. This place needs to be clean. You know, she, she with the animals even, she's like, okay, it's cleaning time. I'm going to clean. And then tells all of the animals what to do. Like, she is a very bossy character. And I would be fine if Grumpy was like, mm, not not wanting, you know, the bossy little princess to tell him what to do. Um, so it, I, I love the character. I love his arc. I just, let's just cut the, the sexism down just a, a little bit. And I think we'd be in a gold spot with him. Yeah, and, and I, I certainly take that as a, I mean... Clearly, that should be something excised from the modern adaptation. And thinking about it with that sort of contemporary lens of the time, I sort of take it as like, I don't, I, and again, maybe this is just my headcanon. Uh, I don't think Grumpy is an actual sexist. I think that he's using se sexist rhetoric because that's what he understands best in terms, in a way to communicate his frustration. Because uh, I, I think, I think what you're talking about is right. I think that is actually how he feels on the inside. But the way that it comes across is, oh, this this woman is trying to domesticate me, and therefore, and I will not stand for it. Um, and I, I I agree. I think in an adaptation they need to to recalibrate that, um, but I, and and get at that same underlying feeling of hey, my my way of life is being changed and actively threatened by this home invader. Um, <laughs> But I, uh, I'll, I'll give him a, a, a little, just a little tiny bit of a pass on that. Because I, I think you really hit what he's, what the character is meant to feel and what we're meant to take away from him is not, is maybe not his sexism, even though that is how he vocalizes it. And again, uh, it could be better. You know, if it was more direct about all the feelings you're talking about, I do think it would make it for a stronger watch, especially today. But I think that is all sort of, in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't know that it was intended that, you know, this, this you know, misogyny is, is the language of his, you know, I, I think that's a great perspective to put it into, and I think you could definitely make that argument. Um, but, you know, I just don't think they needed it. Because when I was watching, you know, she, she comes into their house... To be fair, the animals told her to do it, but still, she, she comes into their house, she moves everything, she starts making food, and then she falls asleep in their bed. It's very much a Goldilocks moment, you know, and I would love it if they just mm -hmm. leaned into that and Grumpy goes, somebody's been sleeping in my bed and she's still there. I'm not cool with this. <laughs> you know, there's... There's such a blend of, of little different narrative bites, and I would love if Grumpy is just constantly befuddled by why this, this random person has taken over his house. Uh, because that is and what she did. And befuddled by why all of his... Uh, also befuddled by 
what you know his brothers co-workers roommates whatever whatever the dwarf's relationship with each other actually is <laughs> befuddled at their reaction to her and their immediate like infatuation with her because i agree with you it's not needed um and it certainly would be an improvement to take it out uh so i'm, I'm hoping they retain the sort of like iconic i i the version of Grumpy that has become an icon, the, the way we think of Grumpy, uh, not necessarily connected to this to the specifics of the film. I think I think that's that would be a a welcome change for uh, the upcoming live action version. I love the idea of him being not only, you know, shocked and, and irritated by her, but just being so confused by the other dwarves because <laughs> and it is this complicated place because you know the dwarves are presumably like adult men uh and she is kind of a child but she's also considered you know of marriable age but they do seem to be literally in love with her dopey especially uh like they they want her to be something more there and i think it would be just hilarious to have like a montage of like each one of them, like, trying to, like, earn her affections, you know? One of them brings her flowers, and one of them tries to cook and fails miserably, and, you know, one of them brings home one of the diamonds from the mines, because why are they... That was always one interesting thing for me. We get this weird song where they're like, ah, yes, we dig up the diamonds, we don't know what they're for, but we do it today and we'll do it tomorrow. You know, but they all, like, line up and they're doing things for her, and He's just, like, sitting on the other side of the room, like, eating eating a cheeseburger, being like, why is this happening? Uh, essentially, I want, I want Jughead from the Archie comics, where he's just like, I don't understand why this is happening. I'm just going to eat and, like, do my own thing here. Yeah, yeah. She's definitely... And she definitely does occupy like a weird and probably best left mostly unexplored position <laughs> between like potential love interest and mother figure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think, I think there's an ambiguity there that works in the movie's favor because you can sort of, cause I feel like as a kid, like you sort of identify, at least I did. I, I should just speak from my own experience. <laughs> um, as a kid, I identified with Dopey in that, in that sense of like, Oh, like she's like this mom that comes in and like makes sure that they have a clean house, good food to eat. And I know I'm supposed to wash up before dinner, even though I don't like it as a as a kid. If you're watching as an older person, you're like, oh, it's cute. They all have like a crush on her. She's clearly doesn't see them in in that way. And again, like I think there is a weird ambiguity there that really works in favor of like let's just sort of present this how it is and not (laughs) dig into it too much that's that's fair and i'll be interested to see if that keeps coming up because off the top of my head i'm thinking of peter pan where he goes oh you are female you will be our mother but also she's like oh but you will be my boyfriend and that weird mother uh, romantic relationship uh, binary. Um, it'll be interesting to see if some of these other early films do the same. Uh, and we can talk about this more later, but one more quick thing on that. 
don't you just feel bad for the dwarves at the end when she leaves? Like, whether whether she's a crush or their mother, like, they are fiercely attached. They're all, like, guarding her her coffin, crying. And the prince comes, and she's like, okay, bye. Thanks for letting me live in your house for a few days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at the very least, I hope they take some of those diamonds and, like, hire, like, a maid, at least, <laughs> to, like, come in, you know, a couple times a week, tidy up, make some food, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I... It, as far as I, as far as I found in my research, they didn't, they never made a sequel to this. There were a couple of prequel ideas that floated around about what the lives of the dwarfs were like pre-Snow White. Um, you know, and it does, it does get to this weird happily ever after. I definitely feel like if, uh, not necessarily in the remake, but like if Disney was making a Snow White movie for the first time, like the dwarves would all end up like living in the castle with her and the prince at the end as like, you know their royal guard or, or, or something yeah like they should move in or or just show me like a a 30 second clip of like every sunday she and the prince go over for you know family dinner or something like the these men took you in and you know you took care of them and you you both seemed to like each other and then you just never see them again it's just a very abrupt kind of uh departure there yeah, and I, I do feel like the abrupt ending to me is definitely like a signature of Hollywood movies in the first couple decades overall. So like I'm even thinking of another movie that we will uh, probably bring up shortly where at the end of the movie, the girl wakes up and she's like, I had this crazy dream and you were there and you were there and you were there. And they're like, oh, that's nice. And like, and there's no like unpacking of like, what did you like? What? How did the stream make you feel? What did you learn from the stream? Like, what? What's going on in the rest of, of of this girl's life? And it's, it's very much that sort of, you know, like I said, it feels very in line with a lot of a lot of Hollywood endings at the time, you know. And I do, I still prefer this to the like, very very tired now like dance party animated <laughs> film ending where like. You know, for some reason, there's like modern studio lights and they're all dancing to whatever the pop song of the moment is. But um, so at least at least we get a timeless quality there, even if we don't get closure. You know, I'll grant you that, although I will say American cinema may not uh, do a great job with it. But Bollywood really just makes that like ending music number amazing. So it can be done. It, it should be done. But but maybe not here. Maybe we are just not the best yeah. at that. I'll, I'll grant you that. They, they didn't uh, have an awkward forced uh, musical number breakdown at the end. But I could absolutely see them doing that in the live action remake. Uh, and I'm going to mm -hmm. go ahead and say that I would prefer they not do that. So I'll grant you that. <laughs> So a couple of other things just before we move on to the release. Um, I just wanted to talk about a couple more things with kind of the creation, um, some fun facts and some things that are interesting inspirations here. Um, so Snow White, obviously, uh, we're basing it off of the fairy tale and you definitely get kind of the you're reading a storybook vibe. Uh, in part because I suppose they literally open with the storybook. A lot of that was pulled together by one of the 
creators, uh, Albert Herter, uh, who was uh, from Switzerland and really drew in this kind of Germanic, Teutonic look to everything. And that's when we see, you know, this shift from kind of the cartoony look to this is gorgeous. I mean, it, like we've said, it's we're coming up on 100 years, not not quite, but it's it's getting very close. Um, and this is still more beautiful than most things that are put out today. You know, it's set in the 16th century and luckily avoid some of the kind of historical problems. But you've got this beautiful kind of artistic influence, this kind of classic European look that ends up between Disney fairy tales and Tolkien kind of being the token of fantasy looks. Um, you see all of that coming together, but then you also see some weird inspirations. So, for instance, the Queen's transformations were influenced by uh, Frederick Marx's uh, 1932 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Snow White and the Prince's song is actually based on operas and operettas. Uh, and the flight through the forest was actually based on, you know, the dark kind of gothic horror vibe uh, going on in early German film. So big uh, trivia surprise, one of the biggest inspirations for an iconic scene in Snow White was Nosferatu, which is certainly not something that we often think of. Uh, so it was just kind of interesting how they blended all of this together. You've got the beautiful storybooks, you've got that kind of classic look, but then you've got, you know, and we'll talk more uh, a little bit later, but the, the chase through the forest is, you know, they literally didn't let children see it in some countries because it was that scary because it was based on horror movie directions. I mean, that's just kind of remarkable. I don't think anybody would think, ah, yes, Snow White, the newest, uh, you know, horror movie is out. Um, although I'm sure there will be a Snow White horror movie given the recent uh, Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey movie that came out. Um, which, who knows, might be a special on here for Halloween sometime. We'll watch the, uh, the slasher Winnie the Pooh movie. Um, but yeah, I just, I find kind of the inspirations there so fascinating. Yeah, and I, the Nosferatu one is is pretty great. I had the chance to see that uh, in the theater for the first time uh, this past fall, actually. And uh, if you have, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, Nosferatu is well worth watching if you at all just like cinema because there's so much in there, but it's also just a really fun watch. And, you know, I think, I think one of the things that we'll also sort of be keeping an eye out for is I think Disney liked to scare kids like <laughs> just a little bit like, you know, because I there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff uh, that that'll keep coming around. And there's a few movies that we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking about maybe in a few years time that are sort of notorious for scaring kids. But even, you know, the, the first theme park ride uh, that we'll talk about that was based on this movie was called Snow White's Scary Adventures. Like, it was not, you know, there's a little bit of that thrill aspect and a little bit of that horror influence. Um, I, I did not know that it was, uh, that they actually cut that scene in, in some countries because it was too intense for kids. But 
I think that's I think that's cool. This is not a movie that I found scary as a kid, but I I recognize why it would be scary for some kids, especially in the theater, and especially if you're only used to seeing like Mickey Mouse cartoons. Even when there's devil imagery or dancing skeletons or something, they're funny skeletons, you know? And so like even if you're scared for a moment, it quickly gives away to humor, but that sequence really just, you know, really nails the horror aspect and like the um the logs turning into like crocodiles or or alligators is like just a very cool moment that I always forget about until like I'm watching it and it happens and I'm like, oh crap, like there's some real um There's there's a surreal nature to that to that sequence uh, that really comes through in an interesting way. Yeah, there's a shocking amount of darkness in this. That being said, I mean, again, most of these fairy tales are are much more brutal than we remember. But I do find it kind of funny and very accurate to kind of the childhood perspective that, like, a man literally just tried to stab her to death. And carve out her heart. Not that she knew that part, but she knew that he was trying to kill her. And she doesn't seem that concerned, but the shadows of the trees are monsters. And it's just such an accurate way to do it. That she somehow doesn't fully perceive the true danger of the huntsman literally killing her. But the dark is scary, and the eyes peeking out and being in a place she's not familiar with, it it really does kind of hit on how a child feels. I mean, I know that, at least for me, I, I don't like the dark. Uh, I've never liked the dark. But there is a space that is worse than darkness, and it is partial lighting, because everything is terrifying <laughs> in shadows. And I think that the the chase through the forest is just, it's so well done at showing the child's fear of these weird moving shadows that just feel charged with malicious intent. And it's just, you know, and there's there's plenty of other dark things. I mean, this is literally a movie about a woman trying to kill a child. So, I mean, let's let's be fair with it but you know that scene just really really does hit on the the emotional core of it i think yeah and it, and it makes the whole uh it that darkness i feel like can, makes the whole movie more threatening so when you do see the queen doing stuff in her like dungeon laboratory um with her like crow friend or whatever um you know, and there's like the skeleton that shows up. Like, I I feel like they, the flight through the forest is the most intense dark part of it. But there is darkness throughout, and I think having that scary thing happen relatively early on, you know, makes the stuff with the the, the stuff that comes later, like the cleaning the cottage and whistle while you work and and all that kind of stuff, feel lighter. And then also, you know, underlines the threat so that when we come back to the queen and we come back to the darkness. You know, it's it, we feel that sort of carrying through all the way. Yeah, I, you know, the, the queen does have that. And I, I do find it kind of hilarious that we always think about like Disney princesses and their animal sidekicks. But that early Disney, the villains had their own animal sidekicks. 
I mean, we we think about Maleficent and the Maleficent movies gave more kind of background to her alien si- alien animal uh, sidekick. Uh, and, you know, there's Jafar and Iago, which I love because it's an Othello reference that no child is going to get. <laughs> but, you know, the queen has... It's it's kind of a, a weird missed opportunity in some ways. The crow doesn't seem to want to be there. The crow is not like 100% on board with the queen's uh, plans. But the rats seem to be perfectly in sync with the queen. Like, they're down to be scary. They have the same eyes. I think the queen should have had some evil rat friends. And I think that would have been uh, kind of a fun opportunity to play with. Um, And maybe bring a little bit of lightheartedness to her too. Um, But yeah, I I do find it interesting that they kind of weave that throughout. And, you know, it does make it so that there's there's these breaks and then we go back into the tension of it all um i will say i find it kind of funny that walt thought that the original ending of snow white for the queen was was far too dark uh we can't we can't have the queen dance to death we'll just have her fall off a cliff be hit by a rock and then eaten by vultures like it's it's not like it's you know she went to jail or or even like a simple death this is like a convoluted like step by step like decimation of this woman yeah i I think it's uh you know because in some ways this is the first disney villain falling to like literally the first disney villain uh falling to their death which becomes a staple of their movies but it it does really sort of like hammer at home like she (laughs) is dead there, she's not coming back. There's nothing to worry about. Vultures are on it. They're going to finish the job. <laughs> like, um, and I, I do think that this was this goes down easier in visual media than seeing a woman's feet burning as she is forced to dance until she drops. Like, I do think it's it's it is somewhat less gruesome because it's the the gore is more implied than seen. Um, but I think it's probably smart that they eventually just went to the simple. They're just going to fall off the thing and we're not going to worry about seeing a body. But, um, you know, I, I like that that Walt was sort of preemptively taking the comic book logic of like, look, if there's no body, we can't assume that she's dead. So we really have to like hammer home to audiences that the, like this queen is dead. Snow White has nothing to worry about. True happily ever after. And Snow White doesn't have to be responsible for it, which I think was also a big thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, depending on your story, you know, Snow White and her prince were the ones who punished the queen. And in this, it was, you know, the animals and gravity and a random rock and some vultures just, you know, being hungry. So Snow has absolutely nothing to do with it. Like, to her knowledge, she shouldn't even know that the queen is dead. She just knows that her prince came back and she's going with him. Uh, so she she gets to remain that kind of face of, of innocence. Um, whereas later on, I think the, the princesses get implicated in the downfalls of the villains a little bit more. Or at least the princes do. We certainly see more of that. So it'll be interesting to kind of see that dynamic change too. Yeah, yeah, and... and- how much active resistance there is by these princesses (laughs) uh was there anything else you wanted to make sure we cover before we move on to the release of snow white and the seven dwarfs 
Just one thing that is sort of about the release, but going back to this idea that Disney was doing something unprecedented. There are a lot of firsts with this movie. Technically speaking, it was not the first animated feature-length film. There were two others, but there weren't any others in the U.S., so it was the first U.S. one, it was the first Technicolor one, it was the first musical one, and it was the first film at all to have a soundtrack album released. Which, nowadays, you know, you see a movie and you go, oh, that was a good, let me pull it up on, you know, Apple Music or Spotify or whatever. You know, this wasn't just making a movie. This was fundamentally changing how movies worked. And I think that's just something that I really want to make sure we kind of hammer home as we look into this. That Disney really was saying, you know, it's not just that I want to do a project nobody else has done. I want to do 15 projects that nobody else has ever done in one movie. And if they're not leaving, you know, crying, screaming, or both, then I have failed in my mission. Right. And the more they, they you know, scream, cry, and um, and everything, the more likely they are to purchase the soundtrack album, which will also help me pay for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and and buy all of the merchandise, which Roy Roy figured out merchandising very quickly. And and I'm sure that that was a, a big assist to the uh, to the corporation at that point. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the um, we're going to talk a little bit about the premiere, uh, which was at the uh, Carthay Circle Theater um, in California on December 21st, 1937. And then there was like a brief New York run, and then it, it started to get into a wider release in uh, on February 4th of 1938. Um, release, release, movie releases and like dates at this time are a little arbitrary <laughs> other than the actual premiere. So... We'll continue to try to sort of explain those as best we can. But, um, you know, the, the premiere itself was uh, a, a huge event, uh, which, you know, we both have some notes on. Yeah, so, you know, this event, today we think about premieres and it's it's the celebrities and Disney got several tickets for, for the people at the company. Uh, and it was every major celebrity of the time and every rich person of the time. And they had a model dwarf house just on the line you were waiting at to go in and they were handing things out. And, you know, this was a major, major event and it made a splash. And one of the really fascinating things, Walt Disney loved Charlie Chaplin. And to be fair, most people did at this point. But he was just absolutely in love with him. He thought that Charlie Chaplin was the height of comedy. He put some of his routines and his mannerisms into, you know, some of the characters that he put together. And we found out that at this point in time, this was actually a mutual respect, which is, is kind of cool. I mean, there's not that many times where you really get to kind of gain the attention of your idol. Uh, but on the premiere date, as Disney walked out of his car and, and walked into the theater, he had a telegram in his pocket from Charlie Chaplin, which I'm sure was one of those moments where he's like, mm, I am a grown up. I am the head of this company. But oh, my God, I got a message from Charlie Chaplin, uh, which maybe he got others. But still uh, that said, am convinced all our fondest hopes will be realized tonight. 
And the idea that your idol not only knows who you are, but that he is rooting for you at the same time. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Disney was like, yeah, I mean, the movie that premiered the attention, that was great. But I mean, Charlie Chaplin was like excited for me. And that's really all I care about. So it was this big day for him. Yeah, I, I think this is a really huge day for him, you know, over the course of his life, putting aside, you know, getting married, his kids being born, <laughs> his first, his first, you know, backyard train that he could ride around on. Like this has to be up there with 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 those moments uh, for Walt in terms of a triumph, both like with the premiere themselves, which, again, I was actually surprised to discover how elaborate it was, um, you know, because there were thousands of people who went even though they couldn't get tickets just to see these displays, um, you know, to see the celebrities, which, you know, included esteemed Hollywood actors, but also uh, Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and the Seven Dwarfs were also in attendance at the premiere. And um, I was really charmed to see that as a, like, okay, you you can trace, you know, the idea of these characters appearing in real life, you know, as people in costume. all you know to the genesis of Disneyland, and it you can see these things starting to sort of like you can see the stew like coming together a little bit uh, already, which is kind of interesting, um, you know, in the way that these characters are are represented, and um, you know, it brings like this and the soundtrack album brings the movie home to people who hadn't even seen it yet, maybe. You know, like if that one of the songs becomes a breakout and is getting getting radio play, like Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf did. There are people who might buy the record before Snow White premieres in their town. Yeah, there was definitely, you know, this sense that you could experience it without being one of the lucky few to be in it. You know, some of these people literally stood in the streets the whole time just to watch celebrities come out with tears and they're like, okay, it must have been a success because I see, you know, the richest man in California crying over there. So it was either really good or really bad, but I'm thinking it's good. You know, it really was this public spectacle. And it's not like, you know, it was on Disney Plus for everybody to, to download two days later. People had to wait a very long time to see it themselves. But they were just happy to be part of it. Yeah, and, you know, I think um, something we both discovered in our research is that, like, it was, I mean, an overnight sensation. Just an immediate success, critically, publicly. Um, It was everything that the bank (laughs) hoped it was going to be. Um, you know, because I, I see you put in the notes here that like within two years it had played in 49 countries and was dubbed in 10 languages. And, you know, something we might talk about a little bit later, but I keep thinking about this in relation to the Three Little Pigs and the Depression and how much a story like this would resonate with people who had been experiencing all this hardship, who maybe identified with Snow White having to be a scullery maid more than you know, I did as a kid when like, you know, I mean, not that we didn't have problems, but like I had a relatively comfortable upbringing, um, you know, being like a, somewhere between working and middle class parents, like, and this was a really hard time for people. And this kind of entertainment seemed to be seemed to kind of rule the day. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things that, I mean, the 30s were so much about escapism, but they were also about seeing a win. You know, you needed to see the the hero get through it. You needed to see them go through similar struggles to you to know that you could do it. Um, and that was absolutely what Snow White did. I mean, the it was held up critically as, as amazing. I mean, it's considered one of the most important moments in American history, in film history to this day. And they knew that. They, they knew it the instant it came out that it was what they needed it to be. Um, it was tremendously financial success, financially successful. Disney gave every employee that worked on Snow White a bonus of three months salary, which we will get into the union problems that absolutely happened later on. But how many companies would ever just go, you know what? I am so thankful for all of you. I am giving you a quarter of your yearly salary today because we, we just had a really good time. Like, this went well. Um, I mean, it was just absolutely a sensation, which led to the Academy Award, which is kind of an interesting uh, situation. He was not uh, nominated, nor did he win. I, I believe he wasn't nominated. I could be wrong on that. Uh, he did not win the Academy Award for Best Picture, which was the first time that it ever could have been. And Disney was a perfectionist, not just in his art, but also in, you know, his social life. Disney knew what the successful people were doing and he it, doing and he was doing it. He took up golf, he took up water polo, he was getting all in high society, and it, it rubbed him wrong that he did not win uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture. I don't have down what did win. Let me look that up. Uh, and while, while you're looking that up, uh, I can definitely elaborate a little bit on that in that uh, no movie released under the Disney banner has ever won Best Picture, even all the way up, up until now. And it won't happen this year based on what's what's nominated at the time we're recording this. Uh, and, I, and that is something that still kind of rubs some people at the company the wrong way. And again, was a big thing behind Mary Poppins, which we'll talk about, uh, you know, at some point in the future uh but again this i believe this comes up in saving mr banks uh which i've only seen the one time when it was new but um there was still always that that was like the last thing for walt that he never really got that he thought he deserved and that you know arguably he did deserve um mm -hmm. so just for the record for everyone out there wondering so, what won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1937? As long as, you know, Google and Wikipedia haven't steered me wrong. The Great Zeigfeld, or Ziegfeld, which I don't know about all of you, but I have studied a good bit of film history, and I have never heard of that movie. So, I can just say that it probably was not that important. And yet Snow White is continued to be held up as one of the most important things to ever come out. Uh, and I did just verify he was not nominated, nor did he win. So, you know, I, I can look at it and say, oh, well, that's, you know, Walt should have been happy with what he'd got because he did 
win an Academy Award for it. They created a special Academy Award, oddly in 1939, not in 1937, uh, but there was a special Academy Award that was one full-sized Oscar and seven dwarf Oscars, uh, presented by Shirley Temple, who was pretty much the biggest person out there at the time. But, you know, they made him his own award. That's, that's really great. But he probably deserved the, the Academy Award for Best Picture. I mean, I, I'm saying this having watched none of the things that were nominated <laughs> for that year. But I'm also saying that I would bet that the vast majority of people have not watched any of the movies that were nominated that year. So, you know, he was bitter. I, I can understand it. You know, we, we have the benefit of hindsight, but they knew in the moment that it was going to be or that it was, you know, this huge sensation. And, you know, awards aren't everything. And especially these days, there's a lot of bias. There's a lot of, you know, who knows who. There's a lot of discrimination. But, you know, I'm, I think I'm on Walt's side here. I think he should have won. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I've been, uh, you know, a long-term goal of mine is to watch all the Best Picture winners, and The Great Ziegfeld is not one that, like, jumped to the top of my list as one to watch. It's like, I'll I'll get there eventually, <laughs> and I still haven't. So, whereas I've seen Snow White, in just in working on the genesis of this podcast over the past uh, couple of years, I've watched Snow White three times, which, you know, um, it, it holds up, and that's... Uh, and again, you know, there's a lot of times where innovation doesn't always translate to, uh, especially at the Oscars, to awards. And, uh, you know, the, the clip of Shirley Temple presenting Walt the special Oscars is very cute and very sweet. And Walt seems, I don't want to say, like, embarrassed. Like, he's he's being a, very gracious to Shirley Temple, because how could you not be? But, you know, I, I do like imagining him thinking of it as sort of a, like oh, that's, like, that's really nice, Mr. Disney. Like, you did this, like, cool thing, and here's a special award, and, like, but it's not, it's not, it's not a competitive Oscar. You didn't beat anybody to win it. It's like, you did this thing, we want to recognize you for it, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's still not a real movie. Right, and, you know, we can talk about all of the technical developments and all of the, you know, ways that this went out, but it wasn't like it wasn't a financial success. This was the highest grossing film of all time until Gone with the Wind. Now, granted, that was only two years later, so it wasn't like it was forever, but that was kind of a big deal. I mean, it made a huge amount of money. It was reissued eight times, and like uh, you said earlier, this was in 49 different countries and 10 different languages. I, I have not done the research, so I could be horribly wrong on this, but I'm willing to bet that that isn't true of a lot of the other things. So it was a critical success. It was a financial success. It was a cultural success. And yeah, so as, as much as awards aren't necessarily true to what should be awarded, it, it does seem like in this case, it, it, he should have won the proper award. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to touch on the, the reissues real quick just because uh, this is something that may or may not come up again later, but for a lot of their 
classic films, especially the animated stuff, before the days of uh, Disney Plus and DVD and VHS, uh, Disney would release their classic animated films roughly every seven years um, so that they could catch each generation of kids as they were around the right age to see it. And so, like, I have a memory of seeing uh, what must have been maybe the last release of Pinocchio before VHS or right around the same time as VHS. Um, And, like, this was, like, just a thing that they would do. And, one, they would keep making money, um, you know, and, two, it was a way to, again, keep these films, the legacy of these films alive even beyond, you know. And it was was like a special event because it was like, oh, Disney is bringing back you know, Snow White, you can go take your kids to see Snow White. And I think um, there's a lot of things that are going to happen over the course of this show that are about sort of like keeping, I hate to use the term IP, but like to keep the characters alive and keep people invested in these stories and making them feel special. I mean, you say I hate to use IP, but that is part of it. I mean, the reason that... The reason that copyright laws are the way that they are is because Disney didn't want to lose their most popular and most famous characters. There are literally rules based on pre-Disney or post-Disney copyright laws. And when they re-released, they did get a an extension in how long they could keep it. So, you know, I I think this is a great film artistically and you know, I think that it deserves to be applauded for that, but I think that it's also accurate to say that the re-releases were so that they could keep, you know, the the rights to the intellectual property and so they could make a lot of money. Uh, that was definitely part of at least the modern goal with it. Yeah, and I, and I think that brings us... Um right to our last section of this podcast or our next to last section uh, of this podcast. We do have a format, believe it or not, uh, to those who are listening, uh, which we're going to try to keep consistent so that we can like make sure we're hitting some of these same things over and over. But, you know, one of the things that we're going to touch on is, is the legacy of these movies. Like how do people feel about it now? You know, has there been a remake or a live, or in this case, a live action remake? Um, you know, does it show up in the parks? Um, was there a sequel? So next year, um, there is the live action uh, remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, which is being directed by Mark Webb, uh, probably most famous for 500 Days of Summer and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. Gal Gadot is playing the evil queen. Uh, Rachel Ziegler from Spielberg's West Side Story is playing Snow White. So I don't see the dwarfs being cast, or maybe they've changed their names. There's a lot of people credited as dancers. But again, that's not coming out until uh, March of 2024. So it'll be interesting to see. um, You know, Maybe we'll do a special episode when that comes out as a way to sort of check in on that. Um, But this is one of those... Disney movies that's so esteemed that they never did a like direct to video sequel or like a prequel animated series or anything. They've sort of left it alone, uh, but it does have a big presence in the theme parks. Um, I mentioned before Snow White's Scary Adventures, which is a dark ride. So it's a, you know, it's a non, uh, it's, it's a like on a flat track, more or less. 
where you ride through scenes from the film that very much focuses on the evil queen. Um, so that was an opening day attraction at Disneyland in 1955, and then later at Magic Kingdom in Disney World, and Tokyo Disneyland, and Disneyland Paris. Um, in 2013, the Magic Kingdom version was replaced with a family roller coaster called the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, um, and they updated some audio animatronics. It's a really fun ride. It's not a super intense roller coaster, um, but you sit in like little mine cars that like rock back and forth as you go up and down and around. Uh, and then you ride through the dwarf's mine at one point uh, with all the diamonds shining and everything. And then it ends and you pass the cottage with a recreation of the dancing scene with Snow White and the dwarfs. Um, so the, it's interesting that the original ride, the queen was like the big deal. And in the newer ride, it's more about the dwarfs and Snow White, which is which is interesting. Um, and then there's also a walkthrough attraction called Once Upon a Time Adventure, uh, which is in Shanghai Disneyland when that opened in 2016. And of course, the characters often appear in parades and firework shows and meet and greets and other kind of park entertainment. So it's it's well represented um, in the overall, you know, physical presence of Disney, let's say. Um, but they have otherwise mostly left it alone until they announced this live action remake. So... My one counter argument to that, um, they've left it alone for the most part, uh, except, and I don't think this was done badly, uh, well, in the beginning at least, except for ABC's Once Upon a Time TV show, um, which I personally uh, really enjoyed until it got terrible, which thankfully was not in the first couple of seasons, but you know, uh, there were so many fairy tales represented in that, and it is owned by Disney. There were connections being made there. Um, but really, the two stories that kind of are, are most central is uh, the story of Rumpelstiltskin-ish, the character, super important, story less so, and then the story of Snow White. You know, the, the main character our protagonist is the child of snow white and the prince the main villain in the beginning is the evil queen and as we go through they add all of these nuances to snow and the prince and the fact that he has no name and you know the evil queen and why did she do what she did and uh, i actually feel like that's a very interesting uh adaptation i feel like for the most part they did a very good job with it but it goes back to the idea that if you're going to do Snow White again, you have to do it perfectly. I mean, you can't, mm -hmm. you can't throw out a direct-to-video, you know, 60 years later Snow White movie. I mean, there have been various little uh, adaptations, but they're, they're not, you know, as, as significant. And they're definitely not done by Disney. Disney, I think, was very careful with what they allowed Once Upon a Time to do. You know, they they gave more depth to the characters. They explored the idea of Snow White as, you know, a, a badass who could, you know, fight and, and hold her own. And that's all great. I, I think it went over well. But they weren't going to mess with what worked. They were going to go back mm -hmm. to the original. They were going to, you know, pay homage and, and honor it. 
but they weren't going to do anything drastically different. And I think that that is unique because we see these later uh, Disney sequels that, you know, completely reboot things or that drastically change things. I, I had never seen, for instance, the, the Cinderella sequels until very recently, but they literally go back and say, oh, but what if we just undid everything from the first movie? And I don't think you could get away with that with Snow White. And I don't think Disney would ever want to risk it. Uh, you know, Mickey Mouse was made to be in everything. Mickey Mouse can be every bit of merchandise. Mickey Mouse can be a music, a, a video, a movie, a TV show. Snow White was a monolith, almost. It needed to stand alone as something that nothing will ever come close to. Uh, and... You know, like you said, I don't think that they have tried to hurt that legacy. They're not willing to to risk it because it was such such a an important and central part of the company and the concept of Disney as a whole. Yeah, which is really I, like I was actually surprised when they announced the live action remake because I was like, oh, that's the one that they're just never going to do because how can like how can you you know what i mean like what are they gonna do because you have to even more than you know because there's ones like the lion king which is like a fairly faithful recreation of the original uh and then there's other you know the, the cinderella one you know goes off in its own direction and everything but um there's so there's something so perfect about this movie because again it was so like the process was so arduous and every moment was like dissected to the nth degree that like you really, it's not that you can't improve it, but like, why would you change it? You know what I mean? And it is so foundational to the legacy um, of this. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Yeah. One other thing that I think is interesting with legacy, and this is something I want to ask you kind of your experience. And we brought it up earlier. So Snow White was was such a, a big thing, but it's so similar in in narrative, in some of the technological achievements to The Wizard of Oz, you know, and I was raised and I wasn't raised in a house that was obsessed with Disney. So maybe this is part of it. But I had been told that the Wizard of Oz was the first movie that had uh, full color for uh, a featured film. And, you know, I watched Snow White and went, wow, this is super derivative. And then, you know, wait, that came out two years later? So this was, you know, where it all started. So I'm curious, because they came out so close together and, you know, both of them had, you know, this idea of a full-length fairy tale ask uh it's debatable whether you want to call oz a fairy tale um you know the idea of bringing color into it the music the all of these different journeys um how do you think that being so close together has impacted that legacy because i think they're both such iconic things but in my experience growing up i think wizard of oz kind of won out that it kind of stayed in the cultural uh, consciousness a little bit better. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting because until you brought it up, I had never really even thought about them as necessarily like being being related in that in that way. And you know, for me, uh, like I, I grew up especially on the the Disney sing along tapes, and so like Whistle While You Work, like that sequence was on those tapes. Hi Ho was I think there was one of the tapes where like it started with them like going to work and then went through all the other songs on the tape, and then the ending of the tape was them going back at the end of the day. Um, and so for me, Snow White has just been been kind of its its own thing. And The Wizard of Oz was something that I'm trying to remember. Like we definitely owned Snow White on VHS tape at one point because my parents were definitely, uh, my mom especially, was definitely in the category of people who were like taking the Disney vault thing very seriously. <laughs> like I need to get this tape of Snow White. Um Whereas Wizard of Oz was like a thing that like we would watch when it was on TV every year at Thanksgiving. Um, but it wasn't something that I sort of internalized in between viewings of like the Wizard of Oz didn't have a big presence in my life outside of, you know, usually we were at my aunt's house on Thanksgiving and like we would put it on the TV after dinner and like, you know, the adults would like talk and drink and, and whatever. And the kids would watch Wizard of Oz and um but it's it's just not not a thing that truly stuck with me in in the same way. But I think that's also part of how strong the Disney branding is because, you know, again, I think in part because of those uh, sing along tapes, like the idea of the Disney brand was just a strong presence in my life from before I can remember. Whereas like The Wizard of Oz is like its own thing as a movie. Um you know, and then just another like weird, interesting connection is that when they built um, the theme park that was originally called MGM Studios back in the 80s, uh, its flagship ride was the the great movie ride. And the big finale to that was a ride through part of The Wizard of Oz. Um, so, you know, I mean, Disney certainly uh, by the, at least by the 80s and 90s had certainly recognized The Wizard of Oz legacy on its own as something that they wanted to you know, incorporate, co-opt, whatever, however you want to label it. Um, but, you know, they, they're both, to me, overall, they're both equally iconic in slightly different ways. But, um, and like I said, I just personally had never made that connection before, but I think that's a really interesting thing to consider. And I'll grant you that part of this is, might just entirely be me. And, mm -hmm. You know, I would love to have uh, any of our listeners, you know, message me on our social media and just say, no, you're stupid. Wizard of Oz wasn't important. Uh, and I'll grant you, I read all of the Oz books. So I I know more, or I did, I don't remember most of it, but, I, you know, I, I was invested in Oz and there wasn't, you know, the same thing available for Snow White. Like, I, I read, I loved reading fairy tales, but it's, you know not a particularly long story but i mean narratively speaking we do have you know a young girl fleeing an older woman who is trying to control her and tyrannize her and you know she enters into this different world with these interesting short people who like to sing and <laughs> you know they they uh have a major conflict and it's kind of over vanity. I mean, in The Wizard of Oz, it's over shoes. Uh, that being said, I, I will say that I think, you know, a, a woman asking for her sister's shoes after she was hit by a house isn't an unreasonable request. Whereas 
go murder a child and bring me her heart in a box because a mirror said she's prettier than me. You know, I, I'll, I, I will admit that there are different, uh, different scales there, but there's certainly a lot of similarities and the idea of full color for this kind of a story. I mean, I, I will say that's one area where I think Wizard of Oz wins out, although there's an argument that the emergence of color from the black and white was such a, a kind of brilliant idea that it would have been interesting to see Disney do something like that. Uh, but I suppose, arguably, they did that with the book-to-story transition. That they had, mm -hmm. you know, I believe a film's just like a real book that they opened. And, you know, it's text that then grows into this story. So they did a, a similar thing there, too. Um, but there, there are so many similarities, and they're both such, so iconic that I feel like it's kind of necessary to, to compare them just a little bit. Uh, and we can acknowledge that both are amazing and both have their problems, um, which I think is the most accurate uh, response. But there's definitely those kind of connections to be made. Yeah, no, I, I think I those parallels are really interesting. And I just literally had never really thought about that before. But uh, I do find that really interesting. And I will say, when I was a kid, I did find The Wizard of Oz more upsetting. And not because of the flying monkeys. They never, they never really bothered me. I just got really mad that, like, any of these characters, especially, you know, Glinda the Good Witch, just could have told Dorothy that she could go home at any time. I was like, this is just really mean. Like, you're making her wander around in this forest, and she's being, like, attacked and, uh, and drugged and, like, all this stuff. And, like, she could have left literally, like, five minutes after this whole thing started. <laughs> Which I just found, like, the idea of, you know, like, not having the, the right information uh, and being, being lost was a big fear of mine as a kid. So... I think that just kind of tapped into that on a, on some very deep level. No, that's that's completely fair. And I will say, from what I remember, uh, there is reasoning for that in the books, that it's not just, you know, Glinda thought it would be funny, uh, or the, the more uh, kind of dark uh, fan theory that Glinda wanted to take over Oz, uh, which I think there's there's good evidence for. I mean... She used Dorothy to take out literally the three other powerhouses in Oz. One got hit by a house, one got melted, and the other one went away in a hot air balloon. So, you know, um, but yeah, there's definitely just kind of these interesting, um, the ways they play out and the ways that, you know, both were children's stories that were kind of terrifying in their own ways and both definitely had some major logic jumps i i always found it funny with the uh evil queen i mean number one it's kind of silly to be like oh you're prettier than me but like who is she competing with here like if there had been somebody that like the queen wanted and they were interested in snow which would be odd to be fair but you know at least then there's like a reasoning what harm is she doing by being pretty like, just cut her hair. Give her weird bangs. <laughs> like, it's not that hard. Yeah, I mean, it's not It's not like the queen is trying to marry the prince. Like, she's in power. And and again, it's, you know, it, it is the story of, of hubris, um, I guess, overall. But, but that's what makes her obsession so pointless. <laughs> uh, 
Um, you know, and, and I think we've sort of kind of transitioned into our, our final section of the show, which is our takes where we really delve into our overall opinions and uh, thoughts about the movie in general. And like I said, for me, uh, this was like the third time in the last couple of years that I had actually watched this. And I'm always surprised by how well it holds up as an adult. Like I, I just ended up being really just captivated by it. And I really love this story and, and doing this research to learn about it, I think just made me appreciate it on a technical level in a way that I hadn't before. Yeah, I think for me, I don't know that I've ever seen it before. Um, and that sounds kind of absurd, but I think, I think maybe it was in the vault when I was a kid. Um, because I honestly, like I know it, everyone knows it, but in the same way that I knew, uh, spoiler alerts, that uh, Darth Vader was Luke's father. Like, I didn't have to watch Star Wars to know it. It was just kind of in the culture. Um, so for me, it was interesting because I was kind of examining it in comparison to the idea of Snow White that I had from not watching it, or at least from not watching it in my my memory uh and so you know some of the things that i found interesting were you know it wasn't true love's kiss which is the thing we always hear about um and which has always been kind of absurd like she's unconscious and you've met once although it's kind of implied that they had met a few other times but you know uh it was uh Let's see. It was Love's First Kiss, which is much more reasonable for, you know, a, a young girl. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't say that it's, you know, the best kiss in the world or anything. It's just, it's the first. There could be Love's First Kiss with many different people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's kind of funny because it, it's been held up as true love's kiss. It's this grand thing that, you know, it kind of wasn't it was just you know they had a crush and he kissed her and it was their first kiss and that was all it needed to be and I thought that was kind of interesting that we've blown it up into such a big thing for it to to not even be true love's kiss uh I don't know maybe nobody else uh really got stuck on that but that was something that really stood out to me We'll have to circle back to this when we get to Sleeping Beauty and see if that if, if it comes from there, if the uh, uh, true love's kiss comes from 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 that, because I think those are the only two off the top of my head where there is like a unconscious woman being kissed by a man <laughs> uh, at the climax of the film or the ending of the film. So uh, we'll, we'll have to circle back for that one. But I, I do. I like uh, love's first kiss. Uh, better, especially in, in this context. Um, and, then, and then for me, you know, some of the things that, that I've noticed, you know, uh, Whistle While You Work as a song is very similar to Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf in terms of like the meaning behind it. And it, it feels like it's playing off of those same themes around like hard work and perseverance and we're going to make this a fun like now we're, we've gone past the pigs where instead of saying like oh do your work first and then uh and then you get to play music it's like no no we can sing 
and do the cleaning at the same time. And, you know, again, sort of sort of presaging the uh, spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down <laughs> uh, kind of idea. But it really, you know, again, that sort of Great Depression mindset of like hard work and perseverance will win the day. And woodland animals that become such a part of the, you know, the Disney princess iconography, which, you know, we'll, we'll have to, maybe we'll have to write down the, um, the Wreck-It Ralph questions in that scene about like, and like match them up as we go along. Uh, but I feel like the, those animals exist in part so that Snow White isn't just talking to herself when she's like alone in the woods and, you know, they, they serve a narrative purpose and they, you know, help fill out the cast. But I, I was like, oh yeah, they're adding that so that she can talk out loud. And it's like, she's talking to this deer and this bird versus just like saying things out loud for no reason. So that it, they serve a, you know, that sort of structure moment to moment purpose in there. Um, and then I, I actually kind of really like the idea that, you know, the queen shows up as this old woman and, you know, this sort of is the, the reverse of Beauty and the Beast, where in that movie, you know, it's this selfish rich boy who, like, turns away this old woman and she puts a curse on him. And here, Snow White's like, oh, like, come in and sit down. Like, you must be tired. And, like, it's kindness that is sort of her undoing. And, you know, that's what, you know, put that's what, quote, unquote, kills her, um, is that she was just being nice to an old woman who seemed like she was tired. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, the, the, opposite of the beauty and the beast is is a great point there but i think that you know the other thing is that they gave a remarkable amount of agency to snow white in that scene uh and again we always hear about snow white as as very passive and i just don't get that here i mean she's not you know going out and killing people or anything but she you know she she is active here she did invite you know the old woman in but then the idea that it wasn't just a random apple uh let me see if i can find the specific wording um yeah and while you're looking that up i will say that the image of the like skull over the apple when the when the queen is like pulling it out of the like bubbling cauldron or whatever is is such amazing like that's just an amazing drawing and I love that, like, that's become iconic, even on its own, is that, like, skull apple image. Yeah, the the imagery with that was just really uh, impressive. Um, so I, I found the wording that I was looking for. Um, so the evil queen doesn't just say, here's a random apple, eat it. Uh, she actually makes Snow want it. Uh, she says it's a magic wishing apple. Uh, one bite and all of your dreams will come true. Now, wishing is a very big deal for Snow White. It's one of her songs earlier. There's, you know, the wishing well, and she's wishing for, for love and for her prince. And so it, it ties back into that. And so it makes it that Snow's not just, you know eating an apple because a random stranger gave it to her, she is trying to actively seize her destiny. You know, I mean, the way it plays out is the prince happens upon her and kisses her, and that happens to be the cure, and neither of them had anything to do with it. 
but she was actively trying to accomplish her goal by eating the apple. Now, that seems kind of silly to me. I, you know, if somebody came up to me and was like, hey, I've got something that will, you know, give you everything you've ever wanted. Here, eat this brownie. Uh, I might ask, you know, what kind of drugs are in it. But other than that, <laughs> you know, it, it's a little bit silly. Some, In some ways, it would have been easier if it wasn't a food, like if it was something, you know, like a shell or, or something that she had to, like, interact with more. Um, but all of that to say, I find it very interesting that, you know, it was this choice of hers. It was her trying to take destiny. You know, she was, you know, made to, to be a maid for uh, the queen, which is Cinderella imagery as well. Um, you know, she was forced out of her house. She was made to run around. She didn't know where she was going. The, you know, animals told her to go to the house and she didn't really know what to do there. The dwarves kind of helped her figure out what she was doing. The apple is kind of her first big move on her own. Now it turns out to be a bad move, although arguably it did get her the prince. So mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. as far as she's concerned, she ate the apple and woke up to a prince kissing her. So I guess it worked. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it... It is interesting because she is trying to make that active choice to make the life that she was wishing uh, for become true. Uh, but yes, uh, it was her trusting and being kind that kind of wove in with that um, and sent the message of don't talk to strangers, which I guess was also an important <laughs> thing to teach children because Beauty and the Beast is kind of weird that way it's like hey this 11 year old boy should have let this random old lady into his house like it makes sense with hospitality rules but it certainly doesn't make sense as a message for children right yeah i mean if you're an 11 year old with armed guards at your disposal you can have a little leeway uh with letting people into your house on a really cold night but um no i i think I, I really like everything that you just said because it shows, I think, that attention to detail and all of those connections being woven through this whole... I mean, it's not a long movie, but, like, you know, her wishing and the prince and, you know, the wishing apple and she actually does get what she wants after eating the apple. Like, it all, whether intentional or not, it really just all fits together perfectly. And I think that's what's so you know, besides the, the amazing drawing and animation and the big leap forward there, I think, you know, if it wasn't for the characters, if it wasn't for the way the story was put together, it, it wouldn't have become the success and the uh, icon that it is. And we've spent two hours talking about a movie that's 75 minutes or something. And we've barely covered it, honestly. Right, exactly. That's what I was gonna say. There are, there's, whole books about the production of this movie and how much went into it. And, you know, there's notes from, I don't know about all 25 meetings where they were designing her dress, but this is really like barely hitting the tip of the iceberg with this particular movie. And so there'll definitely be a lot, there'll definitely be some shorter episodes in our future when we get into uh, the more frequent releases, but especially in this early period with these first five big movies, the whole effort of, the, I mean, they're still making shorts. 
like the old mill that we talked about last week where they introduced the multiplane camera was a lead up into Snow White because that was an important technical development to make this movie. Uh, and that stuff continues and they're still working on on shorts and things. But really the whole of the studio, like this is like these movies are the main thing. Like this is what's happening. Yeah, uh, I exactly. Um, and they just did it so well. I, the detail work. This is something that I talked about in the shorts that, you know, it's impressive how many little specific things. I mean, every single thing in the castle, every single thing in the dwarf's house has a carving. There is, you know, a face. There is a, a creature, which uh, leads into uh, something I want to spend a, a brief moment on, which is Easter eggs. Uh, that some of these, I think, were definitely intentional, and some of them maybe maybe less so. Uh, but we're, we're all used to today, especially with uh, Marvel, you know, what secrets are being uh, strewn throughout. So some of the secrets that I found, um, there is a mug in the dwarf house with a tortoise, tortoise shell lid and a hair on the side as a throwback to uh, the tortoise and the hair. Uh, the birds uh, gather together a bundle of flowers and then they pour water onto it. And the specific way that they do it is very similar to how the birds tried to put out the fire um, in uh, Flowers and Trees. So I'm sure there's more of these, but some of those big... Uh, silly symphonies that we discussed in the previous episode are kind of woven throughout, uh, which I find great. And Disney will do this a lot going forward. Uh, you know, can you find the, the hidden Mickeys and, and all of that? Um, and then there's something that is an Easter egg to us now that may or may not have been an Easter egg to them at the time, uh, which I find fascinating. Uh, so the dwarves, uh, as they are trying to figure out what kind of monster has broken into their house, uh, they get uh, excited and surprised and they shout out Jiminy Crickets, which I immediately went Pinocchio. But according to my research, the phrase actually dates back to the early 1800s. Uh, so this actually was an expression of surprise and confusion that essentially was their way of avoiding saying Jesus Christ. They said Jiminy Crickets. Uh, but obviously our modern audiences would see it as a reference to Pinocchio. But I don't know if it was supposed to be. Uh, so in the Pinocchio book, there was a, a cricket character, but it didn't have a name. Uh, so we don't know how early precisely uh, Jiminy Cricket was pulled together. We do know that essentially animator Ward Kimball uh, was considering quitting because his main uh, sequences in Snow White were cut and Walt convinced him to stay by giving him the character that would become Jiminy Cricket. So we know that it was, you know, being discussed at the time, but it's actually hard to say whether this was supposed to be a reference or not because even though uh pinocchio would become the next movie to come out everyone thought that the next movie was going to be bambi and we can talk more about why that didn't end up being that in the future 
But that's that's one of those interesting Easter eggs where we may never know if it was actually intended or not. Uh, but that's so those are the the fun little detail Easter eggs uh, that I'm giving everyone out there for trivia. So uh, hopefully those are of use to you someday. Also, the uh, only character with blue eyes in the movie is Dopey. The queen and the rats have green eyes and everybody else has brown eyes. So once again, Dopey stands out more than Snow White because the dwarves are more interesting than she is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I actually paused the movie to do a brief bit of Jiminy Cricket research <laughs> when I was watching. So I was glad that you brought that up because I do think that's really fascinating. Uh, and we'll have to see if we can we can suss out because there's something there's definitely some stuff with going on around Pinocchio development, but I I don't know if the character even had a name yet at this point. So um, it it is really funny how they've completely like now you can't you can't think Jiminy Cricket without picturing Jiminy Cricket. So, right. <laughs> so um, you know that's uh, that th that's a really good pull, but uh, but yeah, I think I think that covers everything that we can cover because you know, like we both said, there is. Yeah, we like I said at the at the top, we could do a whole podcast miniseries just about Snow White, and we would never run out of things to talk about. Um, but I think we've hit on all of all of the big stuff, all of the stuff that we really wanted to talk about, and is going to lead us into our next episode. Uh, so, Megan, if you want to wrap us up, absolutely. Let me put on my uh, newscaster radio voice. <laughs> next time on Dream with Mind and Heart. We will let our conscience be our guide and make a wish upon a star with Pinocchio. Please join us. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>